Hello, and welcome to Statistically Interesting, the podcast where we interview analysts and data scientists to learn about the fascinating work that they do and how they got to where they are today. I'm your host, Jake Stein. I'm co-founder and CEO of Stitch. You can find out more about me and hear about new episodes by following me on Twitter, at Jake Stein. All right, today on the show, we have something a little bit different. My favorite charity is called Give Directly. Now, most charities take cash donations and then use that to provide goods or services. Give Directly, on the other hand, takes cash from donors and then provides cash transfers directly to some of the poorest people in the world so that they can make their own decisions about the best way to use the money to help themselves and their family. Give Directly is incredibly transparent, they're rigorous in their thinking, and they're data-driven. They continually run randomized controlled trials to determine the best way to run their organization, and the results have led to them being selected as a top charity by GiveWell for five years in a row. GiveDirectly recently held a conference call for donors, and they gave me permission to include a recording of that call on the podcast. I always find these to be fascinating and enlightening, and I'm confident that anyone who enjoys Statistically Interesting will enjoy it as well. If you do like what you hear, I hope you'll join me and make a donation to GiveDirectly this holiday season. So without further ado, here's the conference call of the most data-driven charity I know, GiveDirectly. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining GiveDirectly's semi-annual open call. My name is Fiona Liao, and I'll be moderating the call today. We'll begin with a presentation by Paul Nyhaus, our president and co-founder. Paul, you may begin. Fiona, do you hear me all right? Hi, Paul, yes, we can hear you. Okay, great. Um, and I'm going to assume that other folks on the line can hear as well um, and just say uh, welcome. We're really excited to have you all here um, for uh, what has become a, a semi-annual tradition and something that we really look forward to. Um, the, uh, the plan for the call, as Fiona said, is I'm going to walk through a very short uh, note that we sent around that summarizes at a very high level um, how we think things um, have gone so far this year um, and talk a bit about plans for next year, but then plan to spend the bulk of the time on any questions that, uh, that you all may have. Um, and those are, again, those are easiest if you email them in and then we can call on you one at a time, um, but we can also uh, try to take uh, open mic towards the end, uh, depending on um, on time. So, um, on with me today are uh, a few other folks uh, from Give Directly. So I just wanted to um, um, quickly say hi to uh, to all of them. Um, Matt, uh, who leads our marketing and product work. Um, Ian, who leads our partnerships work, and uh, Joe, who is uh, our regional director uh, on our field team are all here as well, and uh, will hopefully be uh, the ones answering the bulk of the questions since they're the ones who do the bulk of the work. Um, but I get to kick things off. So um, if you have that document up that we sent around, um, I'm going to walk through it quickly, starting on the uh, second page, which summarizes goals um, and progress against those goals for 2016. Um, the first is a revenue goal, um, and I should say that um, we have a goal here of raising a bunch of money to put in the hands of poor people, which we're really excited about. Um, and we're on track to hit that. But I think equally important for us this year was to start building the team that would let us do this in a really um, scalable way. And we'll talk a little bit towards the end about some of the things that uh, Matt and the team he's building um, are working on. I think that in the long run, you know, we, we've been incredibly fortunate in the early days of GiveDirectly to have a kind of group of supporters and donors, um, including a lot of us on this call, um, who uh, were sort of drawn naturally to the idea and to the evidence. Um, I think that in the long run for GiveDirectly to have the kind of impact that we want and really change the way the rest of the aid sector works, uh, we know that we're going to have to reach out to broader audiences um, and uh, engage with them as well. And uh, so we've started this year to build a team that I think in the long run we want to do that. Um, so that's um, been exciting. Um, and Matt, we'll get to uh, hear from a bit as we go. Um, the second goal was to uh, deliver um, $40 million of cash 
in uh, Kenya, Uganda, and um, also in Rwanda. We're gonna we're doing some work now starting this year, although uh, that's part of a separate project. Um, and we're uh, actually ahead of pace on those. So the problem that we're having right now is there's a good chance that our field teams may run out of work to do before the end of the fiscal year. And so that's a great problem to have, and uh, it, it also creates a great opportunity for uh, for giving. So um, wanted to uh, share that with all of you. Um, the, uh, the other goal we had here, looking further out ahead, was to be ready to roughly double again in 2017. Um, and for context, GiveDirectly has roughly doubled each year in terms of the amount of money that we've delivered um, to the poor, which so we think about as our ultimate performance indicator is how much money are we putting in poor people's hands. Um, to keep growing at that rate as you grow bigger and bigger is incredibly ambitious. So I, I don't want to shy away from the fact that being ready to move $100 million next year is a very ambitious target. Um, but there's been a lot of investment, um, both in, in hiring and training people and also in putting in place new systems and new technology to get us there, um, where I think when we look at the math right now and have gone through it, um, for example, with GiveWell in their analysis of room for funding, I actually think that that's very realistic and that we could do that. Um, so that's a, an exciting opportunity looking ahead. Um, three is we, we have a partnership with USAID, which I think we've talked about on some of these calls previously, and it's an interesting one. You know, initially, I think... GiveDirectly was built for individual donors. You know, the co-founders of GiveDirectly, myself and the others, wanted to be able to give away our own money. Um, we've also thought long and hard about how we could constructively engage with some of the big institutional funders, um, the people who give official development assistance, right, foreign aid. And um, this project in Rwanda is, is an outgrowth of that thinking. Um, and what's exciting about the project is that it's uh, an RCT, a randomized controlled trial of cash transfers that USAID is funding and it's actually the first time outside of humanitarian crises that they've tried using cash transfers. So they're trying it for the first time. And the experience so far in Rwanda is still early days. We don't have the results back yet from that impact evaluation. But I think the collaboration has already been positive enough um, that they're looking to expand it now to four additional countries. And so, you know, this we think of as a high-risk, high-return strategy. Um, you know, there's a big institutions like USAID are hard to move. But we think when you see demonstrated interest like this, uh, from a big institution like that in trying something new. It's really a rare opportunity. Um, and so even though these projects are more work um, and more complex for us to manage, um, we're excited about those. Um, and then the fourth big thing for the year was to launch this basic income guarantee study. And um, we have kicked that off. We've kicked off um, implementation in a first pilot village where we're testing out the operational mechanics. Um, that's gone smoothly. And if we close the fundraising gap, which I think right now is about six or seven million left to go on a 30 million target, um, then we'll be able to launch the full study in early 2017, uh, which we're excited about. Um, we have the research team put together with some folks who are really strong we'll talk about. Um, government permissions are in place, and so it's down to closing out that funding gap to kick that off. Um, and I'll talk more about that in just a minute. So that's the high level. Um, getting into a bit more detail on the basic income experiment, um, because it's been such a big thing for us this year, I wanted to give everybody a quick overview of, of what it is and why we're doing it. Uh, and then we can go into more if, uh, more detail if, if that's relevant. Um, the concept first of a universal basic income is uh, the idea of paying everyone enough to meet a very basic standard of living. Um, and so it's a kind of cash transfer, but it's actually very different from the way GiveDirectly has historically been doing cash transfers because historically we've been giving people um, a lump sum. We just give them a bunch of money, a bunch of capital at once, and then walk away and say, you know, do what you want with it. And there's good evidence that what we've been doing has long-term impacts for people because they're able to invest that money and do things that are good for them and their families. Um, but there are a lot of people who think that this notion of a basic income is going to be important in the world 
um, because the world is becoming a much more unequal place, right? There's a big increase in income inequality. And so whether that's in a wealthy country like the U.S. where people are worried about the effects of unemployment because people are losing their jobs to automation, um, to robots, if you will, in the valley, or in, in developing countries where people are worried about increasing inequality and the impact that's going to have, um, and thinking about whether we could use cash transfers as a way of um, eliminating extreme poverty in those countries, there's a lot of debate right now about this concept. Um, and we've mentioned here a few of the countries that are debating it. Switzerland actually had a vote recently in which um, the concept of a basic income uh, failed a public referendum. Um, India is debating it. The chief economist of India is going to be analyzing it in the next economic survey of India. Uh, Namibia and Africa have come close to voting on making it a national policy. Um, and so the striking thing to us is that despite all of this debate, there's actually very little rigorous evidence on this notion. Um, and when I say rigorous, I mean um, evidence that is experimental, in the sense that there is an experimentally assigned treatment control group, um, and that we're evaluating something that actually is universal and long-term, where people know that for a long time their basic needs are going to be met, and then we can see how they live differently. Um, and of course, critics think that they're going to stop trying and not work as hard on their own, and proponents think that they're going to take more risk because they're insured and protected now, and they might try starting a business or migrating to look for a job. Um, and we don't know. We just don't know the answer to those questions yet. Um, there have been a number of really important pilots that I think have sort of set the stage and got the conversation to this point. Um, Shorter-term studies or studies that were non-experimental. Um, and we really felt like now was the time to try to run something much bigger, much more ambitious that could be uh, the early definitive evidence on the impacts of universal basic income. And so that's why we got into, uh, into the project. Um, we see ourselves here as filling this evidence gap. Um, I think we obviously, in general, think that cash transfers to poor people are a good idea. But I should just be open that on this specific idea of, of universal basic income, we, we think of ourselves as pretty agnostic. Um, we think both the, uh, the proponents and the, the uh, opponents of the idea have raised reasonable questions and concerns. And our, our number one goal here is not to prove that this is a good idea or a bad idea, uh, but to generate evidence on it. Um, the team we've put together, um, it's a great team. I'm really excited to be working with these folks. Um, Abhijit Banerjee, some of you may know, is one of the co-founders of the Poverty Action Lab at MIT, and so sort of one of the founders of the experimental movement in development economics. Um, Tavneet Suri, also at MIT and a former student of his. And uh, Alan Kruger is the former chairman of the uh, Council of Economic Advisors under uh, President Obama and um, is a sort of very highly regarded labor and public policy uh, economist here in the U.S. And so Alan's role on this team is to help us think about how the things that we're going to learn in Kenya potentially apply or don't um, to policy here in the U.S. Um, in terms of the numbers, we're uh, aiming to get to 30 million in total for transfers. We've also raised 2 million for the, uh, for the research, so the research is fully funded and have a gap of 8 million to go in order to hit that 2017 uh, target um, to launch in early 2017. So um, getting there, but uh, we're really, really keen and that's our top fundraising priority right now to close out that gap. Moving on to uh, the next page, um, we just this week launched a new product publicly called GD Live, and so I wanted to close out uh, by giving you a quick overview of that. Um, I mentioned at the beginning that a long-term goal of ours is to reach out to broader audiences, and um, I think it's uh, wonderful to get to hang out and interact with other people like us who are very quantitative and very analytical in the way they think about giving. Um, it's been a joy. Um, I personally have just have loved it over the, over the years. Um, I think the reality is that when you look at the models that have raised a lot of money um, for international development in the past, um, they've also made a lot of use of qualitative data, uh, people's pictures, people's stories. 
And so the question we've been asking ourselves is, you know, that information is, is legitimate information and it contains valuable stuff, um, valuable insight into the way the world works. Is there a way that we can incorporate that into what we do that also stays true to some of our core values? Um, things like being honest and being representative. Um, I think we all really dislike it um, at a visceral level and think that it's misleading when people try to tell their story through success stories, like kind of cherry picking a handful of recipients who have had really good outcomes and then saying, you know, this is representative of what we do. Uh, because it's not. Like, we know that in many cases there are other stories that are quite different. Um, so what we're trying here, and I think this is, this is very much an experiment, um, and, uh, and we don't know if it's going to work yet, but we're trying, uh, putting out qualitative data, letting recipients talk about um, their goals, their challenges, what they plan to do with the money, how it's affecting their lives, um, but doing that in a totally unfiltered way. So we're doing this, we're inviting every recipient to participate in this. Um, if they don't want to, they don't have to, so people can opt out. Um, but anyone who wants to participate can participate, and they can say anything they want, and we're not editing that. So if people say something that's uncomfortable for us or that tells a strange story, we're not getting rid of that. Uh, it's going to pipe right through here. And then anyone who wants to can come and follow these recipients and get updates as they move through our process and start uh, receiving the money and putting it to work. Um, so I think personally that it's remarkable to read through this stuff, both in the sense that I quickly see things that totally challenge my preconceived notions of what it's like to live in a rural part of, uh, of Africa, and we really want you know, everybody um, to be able to experience that. And also because you know, you'll see a lot of positive things and things that don't surprise you, people saying, I bought a cow or it's been great. Um, and you'll also see some things that, that do surprise you. I remember I've seen people, for example, say, um, there's one person who said, I, I had to use the money to pay bail to get out of jail. Um, I think that's something that you wouldn't see coming from the success stories of any other nonprofit. And so we're really proud to be able to present things like that uh, because we think it's in the long run going to give people a more honest and more comprehensive picture of what life is like for these beneficiaries um, than if we just picked a few stories. Um, and at the same time, I think that showing the human side of uh, recipients' lives will hopefully let us reach out to a, to a broader audience. So um, we're excited about this. We've just launched it, so this is a wonderful time to be getting feedback and questions on it. We'd love to hear from you on that, um, whether it's on this call um, or if you just go and sign up and follow some recipients, it's very easy on the website. Um, there's a little tab at the bottom right where you can provide feedback all the time, and, uh, and we really value that and want to hear from you guys. So I think on that note, I will pause. Um, that gets us to the quick update uh, from us, and um, turn it over to uh, back to you, Fiona, to moderate as we take uh, questions from the floor. Great. Thank you, Paul. So now we'll begin our Q&A session. Um, once again, if you think of any questions during this time, just send um, that question along with your phone number to info at givebreakthrough.org. Um, I will now unmute and name people who have pre-submitted questions. Um, the first question we have is from Victor. Unfortunately, he is not on the line right now, so I'll be reading out his um, question for everyone. So his question is, I have identified people in my community who live in abject poverty. They have grass thatch roofs, um, and putting a meal on the table is a great problem for them. How can you help such people? Yeah, and so this is uh, Joe here, and so I'm mostly based in East Africa, managing some of our operations there. Uh, the, the quick answer on this one is that the way we choose the communities that we work in um, is looking at sort of objective data on both the, the sort of poverty and then operational factors. Like we sort of usually try to work in more rural areas, uh, work in safer areas as well. Um, and so we, we sort of don't sort of enter particular communities or particular people by request, um, but sort of end up going there because the data sort of dictates that we should. We should. 
Um, then within a given community, we apply the same set criteria throughout the whole community. And so this, you know, the criteria we used for a long time uh, was housing materials like patched roofs or mud walls. Um, we've since branched out in a few of the areas where we're working. Um, but that, again, is sort of set objective criteria that are applied across the board um, and not sort of through, you know, specific requests and things like that. Um, and so I think that means, you know, for Victor's question that, you know, there's a good chance that we could end up working in a place like his community and enrolling people like the ones he's mentioning. Um, but we sort of can't promise to end up exactly there um, or sort of just, you know, follow up on his recommendation. Great, thank you, Joe. Um, we have a second question from Victor. Um, it goes, when carrying out your survey, do you send agents to the areas or you identify a commoner in the area to give out the details? Can someone get the chance to help in identifying the vulnerable people? Right, and so basically everyone we're, who we enroll interacts with a GiveDirectly field officer between you know, three or four times. The field officer is going door to door, house by house, um, and gathering information about the household, um, both sort of general things like residency, um, customer service type flags about whether or not they might need more help explaining mobile money, um, and then whatever information we need about eligibility criteria. And so we do have a pretty extensive process going door to door and then having more people going door to door to check our information. Uh, in terms of how people can help out in the area of Uganda, all of our uh, sort of job positions are, are available on our website if you sort of go to, I think, team, um, you can sort of see where you can uh, uh, sign up to apply for one of those. Great, thank you. Next, we have a question from Beverly Archer. Um, Beverly, you are now unmuted. Please go ahead and ask your question, please. Um, sure, thanks. This is a, about your qualitative data that uh, Paul was just talking about. I, um, I'm wondering what you have in place to ensure that the recipients are comfortable with the reporting process. Um, and I, I think of it in two aspects. One, are they being made aware that a critique is a very important part of this experiment? And so they would feel free to be somewhat negative if that's appropriate. But more importantly, um, is there anything in place that allows for the revelation of very serious problems like financial or sexual predation on the part of the people that they would perceive as being in charge? Thanks, Beverly. This is, uh, this is Matt. I've been working uh, closely on, Give or on GD Live lately. So I wanted to talk about the question from a couple of different angles. First, maybe the second part that you just talked to, the, the really serious uh, feedback that we, we need to always be collecting from our recipients. So yeah, we do collect a lot of qualitative feedback from all of our recipients for internal process monitoring. So we have questions about bribes, questions about difficulties collecting the money, uh, fighting or disagreements within families or communities. So we are explicitly and proactively collecting that type of feedback from every one of our recipients. That's uh, you know, data and feedback that's sitting in our database right now, we're thinking about whether or not some of those questions and people's responses may be appropriate to then include in GDLive. Uh, in, in addition to that, sort of going back to your first part of the question, this first version of GDLive is a little bit raw. We think uh, there are lots of iterative improvements that can be made. One of the, the primary ways that we think it can get better is exactly what you're asking about. So we want to think about a new illustrative open-ended questions that really encourage our recipients to give constructive or critical feedback on what we can do better as an organization and make sure that, that information gets through on GD Live. So 
It's a great question. We'll definitely be making more improvements that address uh, exactly what you're talking about, in addition to what we do within our core operations uh, of asking for a lot of this stuff uh, with every recipient that we work with. And you know, the last thing I might say is just taking a step back. It's really exciting to me that you have that expectation of, of give directly. That there's this expectation from our community for absolute transparency, which is something we are absolutely uh, committed to. And so, uh, you know, working with the feedback we're getting from people like you to make GD Live represent our values uh, as well as possible is something I'm really excited about working on. So thanks for the question. Next, we have a question from Emily Banda. Can you reach more needy people, please? And the amount you are giving now, can you increase even by a little bit? Um, sure. And so this is Joe again. In terms of can we reach more people, the short answer is absolutely, and we'd love to. Um, I think it directly has a sort of unusually direct between our sort of money raised and how we think about how many people we can enroll. Um, and so our typical process is regularly updating our work plans for whatever's in the bank and planning to sort of enroll people for the, those funds as fast as we can. Um, and so, you know, I know uh, Matt, Ian, and Paul are working pretty hard to ensure that the answer to this question is yes. Um, and so, you know, we're all sort of aligned on that one. Um, the second question, um, you know, it may sort of be about our total giving, in which case the answer is the same. Um, but it may also be about how we sort of think about the transfer size we give to an individual household. Um, for that, we sort of thought about choosing the size to match the triangulation of a few different factors. Um, one thing we, is that we wanted to make sure that it was large enough relative to delivery costs. That is, you know, giving more money to someone you're already giving to is free, um, and then giving to a brand new recipient has some sort of additional delivery costs. Um, another one is we wanted it to sort of be able to fund big, you know, life-changing type like sort of we saw in our original RCT. Um, and so $1,000 is enough to make pretty significant home improvements that can have life-changing effects by livestock that can sort of generate a lot of income, pay school fees, um, things like that. And you see the households that receive from Give Directly choose whatever is their desired mix of things like that. Um, but the point is that the $1,000 lets you sort of buy a good chunk of, you know, life improvement for each person. Um, and I think the last factor is trying to balance not making recipients and communities who are receiving cash transfers from Give Directly dramatically richer from non-recipients. That you don't want to sort of go in and reach the poorest people in a village and as a result make them, you know, substantially richer or something like that than the people who aren't included. And so another thing we're sort of aware about is dramatically, you know, um, changing the lives of the recipients we're working with without sort of disrupting the community that they're a part of. Um, and so those are the kind of different types of factors we're you know, trying to sort of consider um, when we landed on $1,000 per recipient. Great. Thank you, Joe. Next, we have two questions from Jake Stein. Jake, you've been unmuted. Please go ahead and ask your questions. Great. Thank you. Uh, thanks to the whole uh, Give Directly team for doing this. Uh, a couple months ago, uh, there was a post on the Give Directly blog about uh, in certain areas, there were refusal rates that were higher than usual. Uh, we'd just love to get uh, an update on that, and if you could just talk more about the details of what's happening and if you have a better understanding of, of why it was happening. Yeah, and so I'll take that first question. Um, I, I think the sort of general context on how many people choose to participate with Give Directly is that in general, the vast majority of people we talk to want up. Um, in Uganda, consistently over the last few years, it's been over 95%. 
Um, in Kenya, sort of before this year, we saw similar numbers. And even while we were working in Kenya, uh, about one region where we are enrolling something like seven or 8,000 people saw pretty similar numbers, 90 to 95% participation rates. And then there was this other region that we wrote about in the blog post that saw lower participation rates, something like 50% or so. Um, and so that's the sort of general context that historically we've had, you know, very, very good reception from communities. And then as we moved to this sort of newer area um, in part of Kenya, um, people, for whatever reason, were a lot more skeptical. Um, I think since that blog post, we've sort of continued to work on a number of different strategies for doing community entry well, basically introducing ourselves to the community. Uh, you can imagine the problem is somewhat funny that if uh, someone showed up to your door and offered you $1,000, you might slam the door in their face. Um, and I think it's a similar problem we face as well in terms of explaining who we are, where the money is coming from, that it really is unconditional and there's no strings attached. Um, and so, you know, the different types of things we've experimented with are sort of video testimonials from past recipients, um, smaller group uh, discussions with areas that we're entering, um, trying to loop in different stakeholders and things like that. Um, the bottom line is that in this one region where we've had problems, um, those things haven't worked all that well, that we've sort of seen them work in isolated cases um, that still about something like half or so of the people that we're talking to in this uh, region don't want to participate. Um, it, it seems like the reasons um, and so, so, you know, have to do with things like rumors that give direct come back to take the money back or that there'll be some type of quid pro quo we're expecting down the road. Um, and then some of those are sort of based in a kind of local religious group that's particularly strong there. Um, and so, um, that's a sort of basic story in that region. We're just about finished up with work there. And so we're actually likely to sort of be moving towards the end of this, um, towards the end of this year to other regions where so far we've had closer to our typical level of, you know, people wanting to sign up for the program. Um, and so I think the kind of bottom line is we've gotten a lot of practice introducing ourselves. It may have been sort of too late for this particular region that, you know, had, for whatever reason, had a really high degree of skepticism. Um, and that we're finishing up with that region in places where we expect to have um, higher levels of interest. Thank you, Joe. Um, Jake, you're a second question? Oh, sure. Yeah, this one, a uh, little bit more, like, uh, philosophical, but I... Uh, I totally am persuaded that Give Directly is the best way to, to help uh, poor people, and especially poor people. And, and I'm curious if you all think there's some way to apply like a similar philosophy and a similar values to animal rights and animal welfare, and if there's any organization that you think of that is kind of the, the Give Directly for non-humans? Yeah, that's a, it's a really interesting question, and I'm, I'll be honest, I, I personally haven't thought about it much, um, and I don't know of kind of a specific answer to your question. Um, I'm looking through, for example, animal charity evaluators, which I know is sort of respected for the work they do evaluating animal uh, charities as we speak and sort of thinking a bit about it. I think that um, in terms of kind of principles, um, I would imagine there should be some analog. And the analog to me would be, you know, I think at the core, Give Directly is about letting poor people um, make their own choices and having a degree of self-determination that they have not had in the last 50 years of foreign aid and poverty fighting and so forth. Um, and it's about forcing the industry that's been built up around trying to help poor people to self-evaluate and question a little bit, look, are we, are we really always the best people? Like, should it be the case that 100% of the time we're the ones who decide what poor people get 
instead of letting them decide for themselves. Like that seems implausible, but that's how it ought to be. Um, and so, you know, at the core, what that means is that the way things get done should be responsive to what poor people are saying is important, is a priority for them. And I don't think that with animals there's an easy analog where you could say just give money to animals and let them decide what to do with it, obviously. But I would imagine that you can build feedback loops and incentive structures that reward people who do things that animals show um, they like or they value, right? Because animals have other ways of kind of indicating that there are ways that we can tell when they're uh, stressed, when they're happy, um, ways that we can tell what they like, what they don't. And I would imagine that, you know, if you really wanted to, you could build an organization around that notion of kind of doing things that demonstrably um, make animals better off by their own uh, sort of revealed uh, preferences as opposed to like our own theories of what's good or bad for animals. Um, I don't have spe specific examples of what that might look like, um, but that's how I would approach it. Great. Reminder that if you have any more questions, please send them to info at giftwriting.org. We're actively checking them. So next, we have a question from Mary. Unfortunately, she can't join us either, so I'll be reading out her question. It goes, do the basic income surveys include questions about aspirations, and will you measure them somehow? Um, so Joe here again. Um, the short answer is, is yes. One of the, that this is a sort of category of thing that we're interested in trying to measure, um, and there's a few different ways to get after it, but it's something that, that we want to see. I think a big value of the way we're approaching this study is that it's um, very long term, that the longest term recipients will be receiving cash for 12 years, um, which is both long in absolute terms and relatively unique in the sort of other pilots that have been done basic income or, you know, will be coming online in the next few years. Um, and I think a big piece of the benefit of doing that kind of longer term set of payments is starting to see how having, you know, a decade or more of security starts changing how you view your life, whether or not you change your plans, um, what types of investments feel worthwhile, what types of things that seemed too risky before now seem possible. Um, and so I think the ways you go around that are both in trying to measure the preferences and the views themselves, have people change the way they talk about their aspirations or their dreams, um, and also trying to measure the outcomes. Are people pursuing more education? Are people migrating? Are they trying out sort of longer payout type investments? Um, and I think a big piece of this will be that we won't have to wait the full 12 years to try to start to see that impact uh, in, in how people are viewing their lives, that as we sort of begin the payments and people trust that they'll continue, um, even in the short term, we're hoping we'll be able to see um, market differences in how people are viewing those types of things. All right. Thank you, Joe. Next, we have a question from Mark Gunther. He doesn't seem to be on the call, so I'll be reading out his number. His uh, question, sorry. Where do recipients of cash transfers of the UBI program typically save their money if they are able to save? Bank accounts? In their mobile phone accounts? Do you help them with this? Do programs aimed at financial inclusion, whatever that means, complement cash transfers? Yeah, so some brief context on this is that the vast majority of GiveDirectly recipients receive their cash transfers, either UBI or not, through mobile money. And so what they, they're from their side, they experience receiving a text message on their phone, and then they see a higher balance in what effectively is a mobile wallet or mobile bank account. Um, and so already that's a sort of baseline product. It doesn't offer interest rate, but it does provide a certain degree of security. It's harder for people to steal it, things like that. 
Um, on, on top of that, a lot of the mobile money providers, including where we'll do the basic income study, um, provide a banking product that's basically overlaid on top of that mobile payments technology. And so in Kenya, we use M-Pesa, and the banking product is called Mshwari. And you can sign up for the, what is effectively a bank account that offers um, a decent interest rate um, um, with something like you know, five or so clicks on your phone. And so it's a pretty simple, straightforward interface that lets you sort of transfer between your mobile wallet um, and what is effectively a mobile bank account. And then when you want to cash out, you switch back to your mobile wallet and go to an agent to cash out. Um, another sort of interesting type of savings we've started to see, even in the initial One Village pilot, is people sort of um, ordering who will receive um, so basically, if everyone in the community is receiving monthly payments, pooling their payments together, and for each month, one person receives five people's transfers or something like that. And so that's a sort of more social mode of savings that at least anecdotally we've seen in this first pilot village. Um, and so, yeah, so the short answer is it's a mix of kind of formal options like um, mobile banking and informal ones like people sort of just pooling together um, that allow people to tran you know, translate their basic income payments into larger purchases. Great. Thank you, Joe. Next, we have a question from Paul Curie. Paul, you may begin. Hi, I hope you can hear me. Um, uh, my question was uh, whether at any point in the future you're planning on developing a toolkit based on the experiences that you get um, in case other people are interested in replicating the experiment in different parts of the world. Yeah, Paul, um, Paul Nihas here. I'll take that. And uh, it's a great question. Um, I think, in general, the approach we've taken when sort of thinking about how can we make sure that the things we do, the lessons we learn, are as easily replicable or adoptable by others as possible has been, um, one is to sort of fully document what we do internally. Um, and, and I'm sure it's the same for you in, in your work that, you know, just getting everybody internally on the same page and having a clearly defined plan and um, measurement strategy and all that is obviously essential. Um, and then just making that stuff completely open to the public. So, um, you know, we have kind of a lot of our internal process definition in a wiki, um, which we share with anybody who asks for it. Um, and with, the, uh, with this experiment in particular, you know, the experimental protocol, um, the survey instruments, all of that stuff will become public information. Um, and then, you know, we'd be available to talk about it um, with people who ask. I think the second part of the, the strategy that we've, we've followed around this has been to be very actively engaged with all of the other UBI pilots um, that are ongoing around the world right now. Um, and so, as, as you may know, there are um, Finland, the Netherlands, um, in India recently, although not right now, um, Y Combinator here in the U.S. talking about uh, doing something. And so we're kind of actively in, in discussion with all of them about the details of what they're doing to uh, compare notes on the kinds of questions we're asking, the kinds of populations we're going to be studying, things like that. Um, I think that um, just in, in our experience, um, the combination of publishing everything and then being actively engaged with the other folks working on it has worked best. Um, so it's slightly different from the toolkit approach, but um, you know, in general, something that we're you know, if they're we're very committed to. Thanks, Paul. I don't know if I'm, oh, good. Yes, yes, got it. Perfect. Um, okay, next we have a question from Jake. Jake, you may begin. You have been unmuted. Great. Uh, for uh, give directly live, I'm curious uh, what success criteria, if you have formal success criteria, you have for the project, and how you decide about enhancing it in the future or scrapping it if it doesn't turn out to uh, to be providing value? Sure, thanks. This is Matt again. Um, it's a good question. I, I would say maybe a couple of types of uh, measurements. So first, you know, one of the big reasons why we're doing this is that, you know, we have a hypothesis that by 
you know, allowing our recipients to tell their own stories, uh, you know, through our technology, that that is going to um, let our recipients and give directly, you know, as well appeal to the larger audience. It's sort of a, another concentric circle of people outside of our core community right now that may be uh, influenced by other factors when, when they are making decisions on where to donate. So there's some basic things we can look at around uh, just donation volume and rate on our website, those sorts of things where you may say that because we're uh, you know, doing a really nice job of, of allowing our recipients to tell these stories that it is having uh, a positive influence on people's uh, you know, willingness to donate to uh, people living in extreme poverty through directly. So that would be the first way. You know, I think the second is just around, it's kind of a reputational measurement. So, you know, trying to be as transparent about it as we can, looking at some of the qualitative feedback we get from our community, from the press, trying to set an example for the broader industry on that front through building something that we don't, you know, as far as we understand, hasn't really been done before in terms of letting our recipients tell their stories completely unedited and then servicing that content in real time. So I think there's some, some broader impact uh, measurement that we're going to have to do some thinking around how we quantify that, but that's something that we're excited about as well. Thanks, Matt. Next, we have a question from Michael Otterberg. Michael, you've been unmuted. Please begin. Oh, hi. Yeah, uh, I think you touched on this just briefly, but has Gift directly thought about a, a UBI trial in the U.S.? And is there any information that would help us understand whether the outcomes would be different in a country like the U.S. versus the countries where you know, Give Directly won't implement its UBI trial. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's something we've talked about a decent amount. Uh, where we are now, um, organizationally, it's helpful for us to focus in terms of where we build out operational expertise and the kind of types of uh, problems we, you know, sort of communicate about. That it's sort of helpful for us to focus on the extreme poor. Um, and I think there's also broadly, you know, GD or not, um, a sort of good point about sequencing that, you know, running a sort of similar scale pilot in Kenya versus the U.S. is something like 100 times cheaper in Kenya. Um, and so for relatively small amounts of investment, you can learn a lot about um, the generalizable um, effects of a basic income, how people respond to a certain level of security, how much their sort of effort or Investments or risk taking start to respond to that level of security, um, and so I think our sort of basic take would be um, that Kenya's is a pretty good place to start. You know, with a, a study that kind of laying sort of lays the groundwork and starts to build good progress for what you might expect in the developed world. Um, and then as we sort of start to allow our study to talk to others, uh, you know, in part we're literally sort of talking to some of the researchers, you know, Y Combinator in the U.S. and things like that about how they're approaching it. Um, but as we start to allow the results from our study to sort of interact with the results from the other studies, it seems like there's a lot we can learn that if we see people in the U.S. respond differently, that that's itself useful information that helps isolate, oh, there's something different operating about um, how the U.S., how society is structured in the U.S., or how incentives are structured or things like that. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's our basic take. Right. Just a real quick, is there any information you've seen to date that would suggest there's differences in outcomes or how people will react in, in a developed country versus a developing country? Um, Paul actually may know a little bit more about the developed world evidence. Um, I've seen a lot on the sort of 
the, there was a, a series of studies in the 1970s um, on negative income tax returns. Um, an interesting fact about those is those sort of, and so negative income tax is similar to a basic income, except they decrease the benefit size as you earn more. Um, and so that was a sort of initial wave of studies that happened in the U.S. and Canada in the 1970s. Uh, those found sort of, you know, kind of a set of sort of broad-based positive results like we see in, in developing world cash studies. Um, but unlike what we've seen in the developing world is those saw modest reductions in work. Um, I think being whether or not that work reduction is um, linked more to the cash itself or the fact that the benefits decrease as um, you earn more. Um, and so I think that's a sort of initial question with the sort of more, more uh, uh, basic income approach versus the negative income tax, um, but also that all in here. Yeah, thanks. Um, folks hear me okay? I would, yep. um, great. I, I, I agree with Joe. I think that um, it's actually, it was really striking for us when we started GiveDirectly that there was so much more evidence on sort of simple, unconditional transfers in the emerging markets than there was domestically. Um, I think Joe mentioned the negative income tax studies from the 70s, which are relevant. Um, there was actually a really striking paper recently that came out, which looked at a, a, a program which paid uh, mothers, uh, single moms, um, to help support uh, their kids uh, much earlier, back in, uh, I think, in the 20s and the 30s, and then actually tracked long-term outcomes from those kids and found long-term impacts on their longevity and health. Um, that's fascinating. And the other uh, sort of thing that comes close in the U.S. that I know of is a study that looked at a, a Native American population. Um, and this was a non-experimental study, but the, you know, the, basically the deal here was that um, this was a group of people who were entitled to get casino revenues when the casino opened. And so you have something that's very close to a clean experiment where a bunch of people started to get regular cash payments from these casino profits um, while their neighbors who lived, you know, right next door to them um, did not. Um, and that, that's on pretty big positive impacts on kids' schooling attainment and reductions in uh, criminal activity. So, you know, I'd say that at a very broad level, the kind of evidence on cash transfers um, like this in the U.S. has been fairly positive, um, but there's definitely far, far less of it. Um, and so, you know, in general, I think we would be very supportive of the efforts to test out more models like this here. Great. Thank you, Paul. At this point, we have no more questions. Uh, so I'll hand it back to Paul for concluding remarks. Okay, great. Um, I'll just wrap up very quickly. If anybody has a last-minute question, you should feel free to shoot it in. But um, no, look, we, guys, we appreciate the questions as always. Um, they're very thoughtful. Um, you push us in good directions, and we appreciate that. Um, please uh, feel free to reach out if there are others that didn't come up here or questions you think of later on. Um, we're here um, at InfoAt and various other channels. Um, the other thing I'd say is please do uh, check out GD Live. Take it for a spin. Follow some recipients. Send us feedback. Tell us what's good, what's bad. Um, and I think one thing in particular that we're really interested in testing is, you know, if you're on this call, I assume you've already thought a lot about GiveDirectly, most likely um, kind of understand the strengths and weaknesses. Um, we're really interested in whether this is a fruitful way for you to open up conversations with other people. Um, I know that for me personally, it's often difficult to bring up charitable giving, and especially when you want to talk about, like, a new way of charitable giving. Um, it can feel threatening to other people and judgmental. Um, I think just being able to share some of the stuff that recipients are talking about through GD Live um, should, in principle, be a much easier way to kick off some of those conversations. Um, and I think they're really needed conversations because I think that for decades we've built up these negative stereotypes about poor people, um, which frankly aren't supported in the data. Um, so we want to enable you guys to have those conversations with friends and family. And you know, one specific thing we'd love to hear feedback from on is whether this is helpful for that uh, or not. So let us know. And thanks for joining.
Thanks for listening to Statistically Interesting. This podcast is produced by me and Ryan Williams at Stitch HQ, which is right across the street from City Hall in sunny Center City, Philadelphia. If you like what you heard, be sure to hit the subscribe button so that you never miss an episode. And rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter, at Jake Stein. Access old episodes at statisticallyinteresting.com. And find out more about Stitch at stitchdata.com. <laughs>